Africa Rise and Shine Africa Zora Africa Amka na Unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We're on the frequency 7230 kilohertz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kilohertz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa, as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Amanda Machaga, Tabisolo Hoko, and Figile Lungwati. In our top stories, on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, South Africa dismisses criticism for support of SADC candidate for AU chair. Hundreds of protests in Nairobi over the death of Kenyan rights lawyer and Zimbabwe police fire tear gas as taxi drivers protest turns violent. In economics, Rio Tinto shelves its $20 billion iron ore project in Guinea. And in sports news, South African Olympic body refutes false reports in media regarding athletes traveling to Rio. But first up, the news with Amanda Machaka. Thank you, Lulu. Good morning. The prosecutor of a special Paris court set up to try Rwandan genocide suspects has called for life sentences against two former mayors accused of taking part in the mass murder of Tutsis. The two former mayors of the small town of Kabarondo are accused of participating in massive and systematic summary executions. At least 800,000 people, most of them minority Tutsis, were killed across Rwanda after the death of the Hutu head of state, Juvenal Habyarimana, in April 19. More than 2,000 people were killed in a single day in Cabarondo, hundreds of them in the town church where they had taken refuge. It is the second trial for crimes against humanity and genocide by the Special Paris Court set up to prosecute Rwandan genocide suspects who fled to France. A verdict in the trial is expected on Wednesday following arguments by defense counsel on Tuesday. Zimbabwe's opposition movement for democratic change has called on SADC to intervene after at least 20 people were arrested during clashes between taxi drivers and police in the capital, Harare. Party spokesperson Obed Gutu says Zimbabwe is burning and the region cannot fold its hands while the situation is worsening in a member state. The state broadcaster quoted police spokesperson Charity Charamba as saying that 20 arrests had been made and 10 commuter omnibuses impounded in the clashes on Monday. Violent protests in the border town of Bightbridge on Friday saw a government warehouse burned down, a fast food outlet looted, traffic lights vandalized and rocks placed on roads. South Africa has dismissed criticism for supporting a campaign to have Botswana Foreign Minister Pelinomi Vanson Moitoi to be elected chairperson of the African Union. It's crunch time for African diplomats who are lobbying support for a candidate that will replace Dr. Nkosazana Lamine Zuma as head of the Continental Administrative Body. Sadic countries have been accused of double standards for not allowing other African regions to field a candidate for the crucial post. Addressing the media in Pretoria, International Relations and Cooperation Minister Maite Nguanamashabane reaffirmed government support for Vincent Moitoi's candidature. 
South Africa is bound by the decision of the countries of the southern region of the AU, which have endorsed the candidature of Dr. Pelonomi Venson Montoy, the current foreign minister of Botswana, to succeed Dr. Thamini Zuma. In this regard, the region is campaigning for her, and South Africa is fully behind this initiative. South Africa's President Jacob Zuma will visit townships in the Tswana metro today for the first time since the outbreak of violence there last month. Unrest broke out after the ruling ANC announced National Executive Committee member Togo Titiza as its mayoral candidate. The Tswana metro is expected to be closely contested in next month's local elections. Today's visit aims to bolster the ruling party's campaign. Tsepo Ikaning reports. President Zuma's visit to Tswane Townships is seen as an attempt by the ANC to quell tension created by the nomination of Tokod Diza as a mayoral candidate for the country's capital city. For her party, Diza has hit the road running, crisscrossing Tswane region to restore trust amongst disgruntled members aligned to Executive Mayor Kosienzo Ramokopa. President Zuma will conduct door-to-door visits in Hammerskral, Winterfeld and Atrechville. And finally, the World Health Organization says it's safe for mothers to breastfeed their children in Zika-affected areas. It says they should start breastfeeding within the first hour of birth and exclusively breastfeed for six months. The Zika virus has been detected in breast milk from three mothers with confirmed Zika virus infection. There are no documented reports of the Zika virus being transmitted to infants through breastfeeding. The WHO says no long-term complications have been documented for the reported cases of neonates with confirmed Zika virus infection. Channel Africa News. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka, Africa, Amuka, Na Unai. Thank you, Amanda. It's 806 Central African Time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. A South African government has dismissed criticism for supporting a campaign to have Botswana's Foreign Minister, Bilinomi Vincent Moidoi, to be elected chairperson of the African Union Commission. It's crunch time for African diplomats who are lobbying support for a candidate that will replace Ngosa Zanatlamini Zuma as head of the Continental Body's administrative body. American leaders will meet in the Rwandan African leaders, rather, will meet in the Rwandan capital, Kigali, in two weeks' time for the African Union Media Summit. Tsepoe Kaneng filed this report. Pretoria is standing firm on its support for Botswana's Pelonomi Vincent Muitoi. This despite criticism of double standards on the rotation principle. If followed, the region would not nominate a candidate to contest the African Union Commission chair position, as Lamini Zuma is from Southern Africa. Botswana's Vincent Muitoi is expected to contest the position with Akipito Mukoi of Equatorial Guinea and a Ugandan surgeon and politician, Specioza Kazibwe. Addressing the media in Pretoria, International Relations and Cooperation Minister Maiten Kwana Mashabani reaffirmed government support for Vincent Muitoi's candidature. South Africa is bound by the decision of the countries of the southern region of the AU, which have endorsed the candidature 
of Dr. Pilonomi Venson Muntoi, the current foreign minister of Botswana, to succeed Dr. Lamini Zuma. In this regard, the region is campaigning for her, and South Africa is fully behind this uh, initiative. Meanwhile, government is reading itself for two state visits. The Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi is expected in the country on Friday and President Jacob Zuma is going to France next week. On Prime Minister Modi's visit, Trade and Industry Minister Rob Davis says they want to address the trade imbalance with India. Statistics indicate that India's export to South Africa is estimated at about 54 billion rent, whilst Pretoria's export to India are estimated at 41 billion rent. Davis says India is a very significant partner. Uh, at the moment, India is our sixth largest trading partner, so it is in fact uh, higher than a number of other traditional trading partners. Uh, I think we mentioned before in another context uh, that the UK, for example, is eighth, so India is, uh, is, is very significant. Uh, in 2015, our total trade uh, was valued at uh, 95 billion rand, and that was 4.9% uh, of South Africa's imports and 4.1% uh, of uh, South Africa's exports. And the growth has been quite uh, phenomenal. The two BRICS member countries will also discuss developments in Brazil and Russia. During the state visit to France, President Zuma will promote South Africa's exports and attract investment in sectors such as agro-processing, automotive and component manufacturing and energy. Trade and Industry Minister Rob Davis says the quality of trade with France is good, although the quantity is small. Uh, there is a um, sizable imbalance in favour of France. Um, the, the, the imports from France are 24 billion, our exports to France are about 9 billion rand. <coughs> and um, if we look at the, the exports that we have, um, well, they, they're dominated by value-added products, which is a good thing. Um, uh, vehicles, aircraft, machinery, uh, then they come edible nuts and, and, and citrus fruit and things like that, only fairly low down. Uh, but um, <clears throat> what does that reflect? It reflects, for example, that we have companies in South Africa that are producing components for Airbus. Uh, that's that kind of trade. So it's actually a good uh, quality of the trade, but the quantity is, is very small. This is President Zuma's first visit to Europe since Britain voted in a referendum to exit the European Union. I'm Tsepo Iganeng in Pretoria. It's 8.10 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. South Africa is likely to see a growth in coalition governments and some councils after next month's local government election. That's the view of some analysts. They say all eyes will be on the Nelson Mandela Bay Metro in the Eastern Cape Province, which will be one of the highly contested metros in the country. Analysts say if no clear winner emerges in the metro, parties will scramble to form a coalition government. Zaline Merrington looks at how coalition governments are formed at the local sphere of government as well as the pros and cons of such governments. The most well-known coalition government at local government level was arguably the city of Cape Town. In 2000, the then Democratic Party and the new National Party worked together to defeat the ANC. 
But due to floor crossing in 2002, the ANC's Nama India Mfaketu became mayor in an ANC-NNP coalition. In 2006, the DA governed the city after entering into coalition with practically all parties except the ANC. After the 2011 local government elections, the DA won the city with an outright majority of just over 60%. The city of Cape Town is the only DA-run metro in the country. A coalition government is formed when a single party does not win an outright majority of 50% plus one. The party with a majority often goes into coalition with smaller parties or independents to govern the council. A Cape Town political analyst, Wahid Patel, says there are likely to be more such arrangements after next month's elections, but probably not as much based on policies. It could become an opportunistic decision by the DA, the EFF and smaller parties. And there are a number of smaller parties across each of the metros in the country who can help make up the numbers Uh, for the two bigger opposition parties. Um, in the first instance, it will be based on trying to keep the ANC out. Um, the challenge is how sustainable are those relationships going to be over the next five years. A research fellow at the Helen Suzman Foundation, Aubrey Mashiki, says it will be very surprising if one party wins the Nelson Mandela Metro with an outright majority. I would be very surprised if the ANC retained Um, its position in Nelson Mandela Bay. Remember, already we are speaking of an ANC which in 2011 won about 51% of the vote. And the antipathy towards the, the ANC in Nelson Mandela Bay has been growing considerably over the past five years. I would be surprised if the ANC won Nelson Mandela Bay. But I do not think there's any single party that is going to win uh, an absolute majority. But uh, if I am correct, I also do think that smaller parties such as the UDM may play a decisive role in the exact configuration of that coalition arrangement. Patel agrees that the Nelson Mandela Bay Metro is the one up for grabs for a coalition government. It is very difficult to speculate whether the ANC will see uh, a turn in their fortunes or whether in fact it will follow the same trajectory. I think though that uh, opposition Parties, I would be surprised if they weren't looking at the different scenarios so that should there be a hung council, should there be a council where the ANC gets 50% um, or just less, that they have a quick response plan to form uh, a government by entering into talks quickly. Um, so I think Nelson Mandela probably is the one hot metro. After the 2011 local government elections, The most coalitions were formed in the Western Cape and KwaZulu-Natal. KZN saw 19 coalitions, while the Western Cape had 12 hung councils. Out of the province's 30 municipalities, the ANC only won an outright majority in Beaufort West. Klokwe in Northwest has been at the center of a political tussle between the ANC and DA since 2012, and in the Northern Cape, the Kuru-Wuchland municipality is also in coalition between the DA and COPE. Both Mashiki and Patel agree that coalition governments tend to be unstable. To keep them stable, coalition partners, which often tend to be strange bedfellows, must be kept happy at all times to prevent them from pulling out of the coalition. Amzaline Merrington at Parliament. Good news for listeners in America. 
You can now listen to Channel Africa by phoning 605-447-1711. So, if you're a Channel Africa listener in America, simply dial 605-47-1711. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorla. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Eight thousand members of the Law Society of Kenya held peaceful demonstrations in the capital Nairobi and throughout the country to protest against the brutal killing of their colleague and his two companions by police. The lawyers have vowed to boycott court sessions for one week in solidarity with their slain colleague, a human rights lawyer who worked for the International Justice Mission. James Shimangula has more from Nairobi. Human rights lawyer Willie Kimani disappeared last month after attending a court hearing in which he was defending a client against police criminal charges. He, his client, and a taxi driver were later discovered dead. Isaac Okero, chairman of the Law Society of Kenya, speaking to me on the sideline of the protest, wants quick action to be taken to identify the offenders so that justice is served. The latest incidents, I think, are just perhaps the most significant illustration of what we can see is a systemic failure of the security structure. There have been complaints made regularly by uh, different actors, but clearly the system is not able to address it. The National Police Service Act provides for a means by which internal investigations are required to be done as a matter of of uh, course, any time there is a death or injury resulting from violence or the use of uh, firearms by the police. But clearly this doesn't address the problem because uh, it continues to happen. So there is a need for a complete overhaul. Okero sends a strong message to the Kenyan government. The strong message is that it is absolutely intolerable and unacceptable that this situation continues to pertain. It is now going to be a threat to the rule of law as we know it and uh, a complete erosion of uh, constitutional rights. So it must be addressed. It absolutely must be addressed. It is the entire week that we will be having activities to focus attention on what we can see is a very, very serious problem. Claire Wilkinson, Kenya's field director for the International Justice Mission, also took part in the protest. This is what she had to say. The Kenyan authorities, I invite them to do like a full and in-depth investigation and a prosecution to ensure that every single person involved in this is brought to account. Heads of diplomatic missions in Kenya, led by United States, Canada, Britain and Australia, have equally expressed concern over the incident and called for immediate action. Holding police officers accountable for violations of human rights and other forms of misconduct, the diplomatic mission's statement said, is vital to end impunity in the police service and to establish safety and security for all Kenyans. Johnston Kariuki, an independent Nairobi analyst on Kenyan social issues, reflects on this. 
the young lawyer was just pursuing a legitimate case for his also young client whose rights were violated by administration police. So killings of the young lawyer, his client and his tax driver has shocked the country. It has elicited uh, condemnations from the country and even overseas. It's high time our National Police Service cleaned up its image by axing, by removing completely those who have been implicated in gross violation of human rights. It's high time that the senior police bosses did that in order to win confidence of the public. Ordinary Kenyans, including lawyers that participated in the protests, made varying comments on the killing of the three people. I think the message is we need to re-examine what the reform process has been and whether we've actually seen any changes because this kind of um, killing is telling of a more entrenched problem within the system tied to culture, tied to the behavior within the law enforcement and that's the action we're calling for. But something just has to change. It is very unfortunate that uh, we have lost uh, three Kenyans we used to see this kind of the extrajudicial killings during Moi's regime. That's what we used to see of these extrajudicial killings. But as of now, we are very, very, very much saddened and very surprised that these things in this era can still go on. I'm a Kenyan. I'm also very much concerned about the extrajudicial killing. This is not the process by which you are, you are supposed to go about. A lawyer, the complainant, and a tax driver. There must be a way by which the government should deal with this menace because these are not the first ones. Many have died silently. But if the government is not going to do anything, let the Kenyan civil society come up in arms and condemn this act as the worst act. And even also, let the government resign. Those were voices of Kenyans at a protest march against the killing of a Nairobi lawyer with his two compatriots. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. A protest by Zimbabwean taxi drivers against the police crackdown turned violent yesterday when residents joined in and hurled rocks at police who fired tear gas to disperse the rioters. Zimbabwean taxi drivers, along with owners of taxi firms, accused police of seeking to raise money for their operations by imposing hefty fines on their vehicles, which they say impacts on their business. Officials say 20 people have been arrested in Harare for staging violent protests in the eastern suburbs. Simon Muchema reports from Harare. A violent protest in the Zimbabwean capital of Harare Monday over increased roadblocks which transporters claim are almost pulling them out of business. As early as 5 a.m., commuter omnibus drivers and conductors had barricaded most roads leading into the city using huge rocks, and buses were blocked from varying passengers. A number of people who intended to travel to the city from townships such as Epworth and Rua could be seen walking on foot. A few hours later, Zimbabwe Republic Police intervened, but this angered protesters and running battles ensued. The situation was so tense that even police officers, soldiers in uniform, as well as journalists were not spared during the protest. Channel Africa caught up with the driver who had this to say. Uh... We were informed that today, Monday, we will be protesting over increased roadblocks. Hence, the protest 
According to an eyewitness, protesters stoned cars and attacked police officers, and for fear buses will be destroyed, drivers decided to park as they monitored the situation on the ground. Shepard Mudua, who is also a commuter omnibus driver, explained. <laughs> Television announcing that 20 people have since been arrested for taking part in the violent protest on Monday. However, the riots in Arari Monday comes barely a few days after similar protests that resulted in the closure of the Bait Bridge border where 40 vehicles were destroyed and a warehouse was burnt over the decision to ban importation of goods such as groceries into the country. On Wednesday, another protest will be taking place over failure by the government to pay its workers June wages. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. The South African government says it's engaging their Zimbabwean counterparts to discuss the impact of the decision to implement restrictions on imports of basic goods from South Africa. The move by Harare sparked violence at Bay Bridge in the South Africa's Limbobo province, resulting in the temporary closure of one of Africa's busiest border posts. Protests erupted when people expressed their anger over a new ban on imports. A warehouse belonging to the State Revenue Authority of Zimbabwe was set on fire. South Africa's International Relations Minister Maite Nguana Mashabane says Pretoria is engaging Zimbabwean authorities to prevent disruptions at the border post. Our reporter Rudzani Chavase looks at the impact of the ban on South African businesses in the small mining town of Musina. The busy town of Musina in Limpopo is quiet and empty as the effects of decision to limit export of basic commodities to Zimbabwe are being felt. Most of the shops in Musina rely on customers from Zimbabwe who buy basic supplies daily. Some of the basic goods are being included on the list of goods that are banned for import in Zimbabwe. Business owners and taxi operators protested on Friday against the move by the Zimbabwean government. Most Indian-owned shops in Musina closed earlier yesterday as there is no business. Sean Mahomed owns a number of grocery shops in Musina. The border is not well. They are distracting there, so that's why the people are not coming through. That's why the people are closing earlier. It's not the correct time to close. We should close at 5 or half past 5. But we are just leaving because there is no people. Street vendors are also some of the hardest hit people. While general workers at the shops are afraid that they might lose their jobs, 
Yeah, hey, as a worker. Also, these things is affecting us too much because now we are not going for work because mm. of these uh, things for shops now are closing. No work. We are being affected too much on this uh, situation. So the best to make a plan for it to resolve this problem. Affected because per day I can sell a time for 1000. Now I can't make it, it's very much hard. Very hard. Please open the border. We need them, they are our life savers. Zimbabwe traders who often travel between the two countries to buy commodities say their families will now starve as it's expensive to buy things in Zimbabwe. There's a customer of Messina, I'm a regular customer here, I usually come and buy my stuff, my food to send it home. Then this situation at border now, I can't send it at home anymore. Mm. So I think if the authorities, if they can do something so that we can just send goods at home, at least the better. But, uh, they are taking our things at the border, so it's too difficult for us to, to give our children like yeah, food. Ah, they said they don't want any goods to cross there by the border. International Relations Minister Nkwane Mashabane says Pretoria is engaging Zimbabwean authorities to prevent disruptions at the border post. Zimbabwe remains one of our strategic partners in the region and this has uh, translated into good economic relations between the two countries. We would continue to engage Zimbabwe in pursuit for amicable solution which would be mutually beneficial. As I said earlier on, because this does not only affect South Africa, Zimbabwe, but several other countries that use the border, the Bay Bridge. The world remains beset by so much human suffering, poverty, and deprivation. It is in your hands to make of our world a better one for all. From July 18, raise your hand and make a dedicated effort to keep helping others in any way you can. Make every day a Mandela Day. It is in your hands to make a difference. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zola. Africa, Amuka na Unai. It's 8.30 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Our headlines up next with Amanda Machaka. Thank you, Lulu. Good morning. In your headlines, the prosecutor of a special Paris court set up to try Rwandan genocide suspects calls for life sentences against two former mayors accused of taking part in the mass murder of Tutsis. Zimbabwe's opposition movement for democratic change calls on SADC to intervene after at least 20 people were arrested during clashes between taxi drivers and police in the capital Harare. And South Africa dismisses criticism for supporting a campaign to have uh, Botswana Foreign Minister Belinomi Vanson Moitoi to be elected chairperson of the African Union. Details at nine.
Thank you, Amanda. It's 8.31 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Now, the UN Child Agency, UNICEF, has launched an urgent measles immunization campaign to protect 13,000 children displaced by fighting in the city of Wau in South Sudan. A three-day campaign launched on Saturday focused on children under 6 to 14 years who have been living in makeshift settlements in the city since the conflict erupted last Friday. UNICEF is concerned that in such overcrowded sites, health risks for communities increase considerably. For more on this issue, we are now joined on the line by UNICEF South Sudan representative Tim Irvin. Good morning, Tim, and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. Good morning and good to be with you. Now, Tim, was the campaign a success? We understand that it was concluded yesterday. It was. It was concluded at the end of the day yesterday. And I'm happy to say that the uh, target of 13,000 children being immunized against measles was surpassed. We, uh, we managed to uh, protect uh, more, uh, more than 13,000 children over the uh, three days. There were five displacement sites in the city, as you mentioned. Uh, and their home to uh, more than 30,000 people. Uh, and the campaign was aimed at the children uh, six months to 14 years. Uh, and we had very good participation. We had uh, social mobilizers going around the camp with megaphones to inform uh, parents of the uh, availability of the vaccine and, and of the importance. And we really uh, were excited uh, and, and pleased that the children were queuing up overall and the real desire to protect their children. For children, you know, it can be fatal and can have many uh, dangerous uh, side effects for children. So it's been a, a very positive result. Now, Tim, let's speak about the living conditions in the city of Wawa. How do they pose health threats? Well, measles being uh, an airborne disease, uh, crowding, uh, creates conditions in which it can spread more quickly. And so if you have one case, the, the chances of it spreading and becoming uh, an epidemic are much greater. Now, we haven't had any cases of measles in the camps uh, so far, and that's why we wanted to uh, quickly immunize the children against it as a precautionary measure. Now, the conditions in the camps, I just returned from Wow yesterday, and I spent uh, the last five days uh, in the camps, uh, very crowded, as you can imagine. There are thousands of people in each one. There's one connected to the UN peacekeeping uh, mission there. That's home to 19,000 people. People are living under tarpaulins. They've created uh, makeshift shelters for themselves. Uh, but there's another settlement, quite large, home to about 10,000 people. That's connected to the uh, cathedral in Lao, and that's home to around 10,000 people. And there, people are living in even more basic conditions. They're, they're living... Uh, there are some public buildings which they're able to access and they live in those, but there are other families who are really just living under a tarpaulin. They don't have any uh, walls or, or privacy, and they're really reliant on uh, uh, aid agencies for support in terms of food, shelter, health care. Um, and so UNICEF and other UN organizations and other non-governmental organizations are really working around the clock to make sure that the, the people are safe and secure and that they remain healthy. 
Now, Tim, UNICEF is also concerned about the dangers for women and girls um, in and around the temporary cities and the uh, sites in the city. Can you elaborate more on that? You touched on the issue of uh, people living under the terpenes and open spaces, which means no privacy. What does that mean in terms, in terms of safety for women and girls? Well, women and girls are always at greater risk in these sort of uh, situations of upheaval. Uh, women are going out each day to forage for firewood, so they're on their own. They're very vulnerable uh, to, to violence and to harassment when they're out like that. Um, you know, the, the communal uh, bathing areas and the clean areas, of course, are uh, present risks to women and children. So what we are saying is that aid agencies need to pay particular attention to the needs of women and girls, which are unique from uh, the general population, um, and that they should have spaces within these displacement camps uh, where they can gather, uh, talk to uh, trained workers, and discuss their concerns. And we are actively working to put those uh, places uh, in place, uh, and we already have uh, centers like that specifically for children, so the children can come and play and learn and be with other children and so that they can resume their childhood even though they're living in these very, very difficult uh, conditions. Now, the funding issue is a very big one for UNICEF. How significant is the funding gap and how is this impacting on the organization's aid activities? Well, uh, it, it is a very big issue, as you said. I mean, we had a massive funding gap even ahead of this uh, latest violence in, in WOW, and there are humani- great humanitarian needs throughout the country. And the WOW displacement was not something that anyone had planned for. It was very unexpected and very sudden. And we estimate that we need about uh, $3 million to respond adequately to this over the coming months. And so far, we've only been able to save about $1.5 million. So while we're doing everything we can on the ground, we're protecting children with providing health care, we're screening children for malnutrition. Obviously, without additional funding, that's going to impact our ability to continue responding in an adequate way. Tim, we have to leave it there for now. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. That was Tim Urban, representative of the UN Child Agency, UNICEF, in South Sudan. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's only official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8.38 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. A new global compact is needed on refugees and migrants to address the increasingly negative way they are treated. This according to Karen Conning Abu Zaid, Special Advisor for the UN Summit on Refugees and Migrants, who made the comments ahead of a UN Summit on the issue in September. In an appeal for member states to come up with solutions for all people who live their homes willingly or unwillingly, the top UN experts said that amid the current migration crisis in Europe, older refugee situations risk being forgotten. Daniel Johnson has more. 
Europe's migration problems certainly are a crisis for the people involved and the countries confronted with the situation, UN Special Advisor Karen Koning Abu Zaid has said. Speaking in Geneva ahead of a global summit on refugees and migrants, Ms. Abu Zaid believes, however, that solutions could be found in states that aren't directly affected by the issue. Is that this is a global summit? It's to in, trying to involve all countries, not just those who receive refugees or produce refugees, but others who can contribute something to help solve the problem: resettlement places, financing, a job or a scholarship, even if it's from a t- very small country. Before the summit gets underway in New York in September, the aim is to change the narrative on migrants and refugees away from what Ms. Abu Zaid terms an increasingly negative discourse. And while the meeting won't produce legally binding recommendations, the UN Special Advisor said she's been encouraged by the fruitful discussions that have taken place already between members of the global community, and which will continue at a rate of two a week until the summit. Concretely, she wants to see governments come up with national integration plans for individuals and families who arrive in their country either looking for work or shelter. Those are needed more than ever because of the knock-on effects of migrant and refugee problems. Ms. Abu Zaid cites, by way of example, the Kenya government's announcement that it intends to shut down the decades-old Dadaab refugee camp complex, home to more than 200,000 Somali refugees, as it led to similar announcements by Sudan and Ethiopia, which together host well over a million refugees. So we say that actions of one state repercussions for other states. So we have to find a, a form of cooperation that make these movements safer and better managed. And we talk about this with respect to ri- migrants quite uh, frequently, with safe, orderly, regular, and responsible movements. But it's just as much for uh, for refugees as well. According to latest UN data, global forced displacement reached a record high this year, with well over 60 million displaced, one third refugees and two thirds migrants. Daniel Johnson, United Nations, Geneva. Female sex workers on the Kenyan coast are finding alternative work after receiving help from a non-governmental organization, enabling them to have a decent source of income. Diana Wanyonyi reports from Mombasa. The non-governmental organization Solidarity with Women in Distress, known as Soluodi, was founded in 1985 in the Kenya's port city of Mombasa, supporting female sex workers and girls who are at risk. Between the ages of seven to 45 years, Soluodi provides its services to the three coastal counties of Kwale, Mombasa, and Kilifi. At Mutwapa Town in Kilifi County. At around 11 o'clock in the evening, I met one of the sex workers on the roadside, awaiting for potential clients. Abigail, not her real name, tells me that her work is tiresome and challenging, especially when it comes to male clients who are not willing to use protective measures such as condoms. I have one client now, but if I get one with money, I will not say no. In a day, I might have four to five clients. This work is tiresome. The good part of it is that I get good money, but its bad side is that it's tiresome. I know my HIV status because I usually visit healthcare. There are some clients who appreciate safe sex, while there are others who are not willing and not easily convinced to use condoms. Clemence Kenga is a reformed sex worker. She explains how she educates others on the importance of having self-sex. 
I'm reformed female sex worker. I teach them on the safe sex by using condoms or they abstain. We also have outreach. I usually inform them that we will conduct outreach at a given place and time so that they come themselves. Due to good work of Soliwodi, more than 400 female sex workers have already been rehabilitated and trained to reach out to girls and women still involved in the sex trade. Ruth Lewa is the executive director of Soliwodi in Mombasa. They are girls and women who were once sex workers. Through our organization, they have been able to be educated and they have now reformed. They are helping us to reach other female sex workers who are in the community. We work with the Ministry of Health in giving HIV services, and we also work with the Ministry of Agriculture in skills training such as baking cakes. A report released by the National AIDS Control Council in Mombasa last month indicated that new HIV and AIDS infections among adolescents and young people have increased drastically in the Kenya's coastal region. The report revealed that 47% of Kenya's adolescent population are newly infected, compared to 29% new infections in 2014. Jacqueline Dache is a program officer at the National AIDS Control Council. The reason why the epidemic has increased among adolescents is first of all because we have not really been paying attention to that cohort. We have money that has been put in, a lot of investments that have been put in into the HIV care and treatment. But again, none of us really considered that adolescents and young people are going to be part of this epidemic. And uh, because they have been left out in the response, we do need to bring together different sectors, including the education sector, for them to be able to support these adolescents and young people in basically accessing and being retained in care and treatment. That was Jacqueline Dache, a program officer at the National AIDS Control Council. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Diana Wanyonyi in Mombasa. Our economics update up next with Tabiso Lehuku. European Union membership has been important to Vodacom's or Vodafone's growth with most of its 462 million customers and 108,000 employees based outside Britain. A British telecoms giant Vodafone warned Wednesday that the future of its London-based headquarters is in doubt after voters chose to quit the European Union. EU membership has been important to Vodafone's growth. There is widespread anxiety about the country's employment challenges after Statistics South Africa said on Monday that more than 15,000 jobs had been lost in the first quarter of 2016. Kosatu has called for more government intervention and says the future is in promoting investment in rural areas and the townships. Another Labour Federation, FEDUSA, says a more proactive stance is needed to stimulate job creation and improve the growth rate of the economy. 
Ordinary street vendors and general workers at some grocery and furniture stores in Musina in South Africa's Limpopo province say Zimbabwe's restrictions of imports is negatively affecting the livelihood. The Zimbabwean government effected the restrictions on import of foreign food and goods import on Friday. As a result, most shops in Musina have been closing early as there are no customers from Zimbabwe coming over to buy. Street vendors and workers at shops in Musina are worried. Yeah, hey, as a worker, most of these things is affecting us too much because now we are not going for work because mm. of these uh, things for shops now are closing, no work. Mm. We are being affected too much on this uh, situation. So they have to make a plan for it to resolve this problem. Uh, we are also affected because per day I can sell a time for 1,000. Now I can't make it. It's very much hard, very hard. Please open the border. We need them. They are our lifesavers. Nigeria's central bank has replaced the chairman and chief executive of Skype Bank after it failed to meet minimum capital ratios. Governor Gordon Emefiele says the Skype Bank's non-performing loan ratio has been above the regulatory limit for a while. And it had met with the Skype's board to resolve the issue. Earlier, banking sources told Reuters that Skype's chief executive, Timothy Ongutayo, had resigned before the central bank announcement. Crude prices have dipped in early trading with the Brent falling back below 50 US dollars per barrel as economic concerns took center stage with many analysts saying oil demand will start later this year. International benchmark crude oil prices were trading at 49.95 US dollars per barrel. Analysts said the concerns over the global economy were weighing on the outlook for oil demand and on prices. JP Morgan says it expects Brent and WTI to average 47.30 dollars and 46.66 US dollars per barrel respectively this year. The U.S. dollar trades at 14.54 to the South African rand, 10.66 Botswana Pula, 9.43 in Zambia, $7 platinum at $1,049 per ounce, brand crude $49, $0.72 a barrel. Thank you, Tabi. So our sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. First up in our sports update this hour, it's football news. The United States women's national team has named 24 players for a training camp ahead of their clash with Banyana Banyana. The match will take place on the 9th of July at Soldiers Field in Chicago, Illinois, U.S. Both South Africa and the U.S. are using the fixture to prepare for the 2016 Rio Olympic Games. 20 players were part of the friendlies against Japan last month and head coach Jill Ellis has recalled co-captain Kali Lloyd who missed the 1-0 victory over Japan due to a knee injury. Also back in the squad is midfielder Megan Riaponi, who hasn't been selected since December 2015, as she was recovering from surgery. Riaponi is continuing with rehabilitation and has only been called up for training and evaluation. 
she will not feature in the clash against the Banyana Banyana team. The clash with Banyana Banyana is one of the two for the USA before they leave for Brazil. And South African Sports Federation, South Coke CEO Tabi Reddy says, the reports in the media implying that all athletes have to pay for their flights to the Rio Olympics next month are a complete distortion of facts. The Sport Federation says no athletes will be play, paying for their flights. Reddy says they expect the majority of athletes to travel on the 23rd of July and those few athletes choosing to travel to the Games independently of the team will have their flights paid for by the Federation. And Federation will then be refunded. Reddy says athletes have been fully briefed on this matter by their respective Federation. In cricket news, Protea's first bowling sensation, Kahiso Rabada, made a strong start on his county championship debut for Kent in the match against Essex at Thamesford. The 21-year-old returned figures of 2 for 28 on the opening day of his side's four-day match, which included the scalp of England Test captain Alistair Cook. Rabada removed both openers with the South African sensation trapping Cook LBW after earlier dismissing opening partner Nick Brown, who top edged to Sam Northeast at mid-on. The performance of Rabada, who prompted the praise from Kent teammate Alex Blake, who scored an unbeaten 89 in Kent's first innings of 207 all out. On to tennis news. Seven-time champion Roger Federer reached the Wimbledon quarterfinals by dismantling Steve Johnson 6-2, 6-3 and 7-5. A 34-year-old Federer has lacked matches and form this summer but showed glimpses of his imperious past on center court. Federer broke world number 29 Johnson in the sixth and eighth games of the first set and maintained that momentum as the contest developed. He's delighted. He's yet to drop a set at SW19 as he seeks to nurse his body through a tournament where inclement weather has forced a fixture backlog. I would have never thought that I was going to win the first four matches uh, in straight sets, so I'm extremely pleased. And, uh, you know, the matches might be tough, but then the rest in between are great. You know, we're used to playing sometimes five straight days at, at other ATP events, so here you get every day, uh, uh, every second day, a day off, and for tennis players or for professional athletes, that's huge. No man in the Open era has won the men's singles title at his age. But the draw he now faces makes one final miracle appear possible. Federer will now play 2014 US Open champion Marin Silic as he hands a record-breaking eighth men's singles title. He won his last Grand Slam title in 2012 and lost in the final a year ago to Djokovic. Yeah, I mean, it's nice that I've never missed Wimbledon ever since juniors, 98, 99, was my, I got a wild card, so I still remember that, it was beautiful. I lost in the first round in five sets, but still, what an experience that was. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, look, I, I think I, you can always, always lose the tournament in the first week, but never win it. So I did a lot of things right the first week, and from now on, you really want to have to, or you have to start playing your best tennis. Uh, Chilich lies ahead, he brushed me off the court like I was nothing at the US Open in the semis a few years back so I hope to get him back this time he's a super guy so I'm, I'm looking forward to a tough match but from here on on uh, it's clearly going to be difficult finally the Russian Rowing Federation plans to appeal to the court of arbitration for sport to contest a doping ban barring its men's quadruple skulls crew from Rio Olympics that's the sport news this hour
Africa rise and shine Africa tsoka Africa amka na unai Recapping our top stories in Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, South Africa dismisses criticism for support of SADC candidate for AU chair. Hundreds protest in Nairobi over the death of Kenyan rights lawyer and Zimbabwe police fire tear gas as taxi drivers protest turns violent. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumuzura Magadza, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Africa or send an SMS on 277-969-57930. Are taking us to the top of the hour for the news. On the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa is Johnny Clegg with a song titled Asimbonanga. We cross the burning water Asimbonanga